As misinformation and so-called fake news continues to be rapidly distributed on the Internet, our reality has become increasingly shaped by false information. As the Axis article, We Live in a Fake World, points out, many people don't know the difference between something real and something created to deceive them. In today's world of fake news and misleading politicians, critical thinking is arguably more important than ever, as it is critical thinking that allows us to sift through misleading statements and fabricated news articles to get to the truth. To understand what it takes to become a critical thinker and how anyone can improve their critical thinking abilities, we spoke with educational researcher, consultant and writer who specializes in critical thinking education, Jonathan Haber. Haber is also the author of MIT Press Books, The Critical Voter and Critical Thinker, which is part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. Hi, my name is Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. your podcast for all things related to psychology and technology within our society. In this episode, we discuss what is critical thinking, what it takes to be a critical thinker, and how our biases can impact our ability to think critically. Haber highlights examples of biases taken from Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize winning book, Thinking Fast and Slow, to demonstrate how we are unknowingly influenced by different types of information presented to us. In addition to this, we also pick apart the behavior and words used by Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the recent debates leading up to the election to understand how they try to appeal to voters. We hope you enjoy it and don't forget to like and subscribe our videos on YouTube. You can find us by searching Brains Bite Back and you can also search for us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms where you can subscribe and leave us a review. Alternatively, you can reach out to us at Twitter at, at the Sociable. Anyway, let's get on with today's show. Sam, if Bill Gates was down to his last dollar, what would he spend it on? Good question, Sam. Well, if you haven't seen or heard it already, one of the most popular quotes in PR is from Bill Gates, who stated that if he was down to his last dollar, he would spend it on PR, and with good reason. Why? Because quality PR turns unknown businesses into established industry leaders. If you're looking to build industry credibility, reach new markets, or grow your business, our sponsor Publicize is a digital communication agency that has helped businesses like yours gain exposure in major online publications for the past decade. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Let's get started. Can you tell our listeners who you are and a little bit about your background in critical thinking, please, Jonathan? Sure. Uh, my name is Jonathan Haber. I am an educational consultant working in the Boston area, uh, and I've been involved with critical thinking education for about 10 years. I think uh, critical thinking has always been sort of part of various roles I've had working in educational publishing, working in um, human resources, but it's really been in the last 10 years that it's been my focus. I'm the author of two books on the subject. Uh, one is uh, Critical Thinking from MIT Press that just came out this year. Uh, that is a book that really focuses on what critical thinking is and what changes we need to make in education in order to have an education system that creates critical thinkers. I've got another book called Critical Voter, which is more of a how-to guide uh, that uses election politics to teach practical critical thinking skills. I originally published that in 
2016, and it just recently came out with a new edition for the 2020 elections. Awesome. Congratulations on the new book. And thank you for joining me today, because I think that now more than ever, this critical thinking is so important because we are bombarded with so much information online. And of course, even just watching the presidential candidates speak, it's so vital to have that ability to sift through what is good and what is well i'm gonna say not so good yeah yeah but um first of all to get started what are the components of effective critical thinking well you know i I think the first question is sort of what is critical thinking because one of the reasons the kind of critical thinking project particularly in education has gotten kind of stalled is that there's this sense that we don't know what critical thinking is, and until we do, we can't teach it. And, and that's sort of a myth. That's really one of the key myths I tried to bust using the new uh, MIT Press book. Because even though we don't have a consensus wording about what constitutes critical thinking, there is a general understanding, certainly among uh, critical thinking researchers, that critical thinking consists of three areas uh, knowledge, skills, and dispositions. And that those three things working together are what constitutes being a critical thinker. So, for example, you can't be a critical thinker unless you have some system for organizing your thinking. Commonly, that's referred to as logic. So you need knowledge. You need to know the rules and how to use some logical system in order to be a critical thinker. It doesn't have to be any particular logical system. It could be informal argumentation. Uh, more advanced forms of of logic, uh, formal logic. It could be graphical forms of logic like uh, Toolman diagrams or argument mapping, but you can't go into the critical thinking project if you know nothing about any form of logic. So that's knowledge, but then you've got to put that knowledge to work. You can learn the rules of logic relatively quickly, but you need to be able to apply it to a wide range of diverse situation. So for that, you need critical thinking skills. You need experience. Um, And then finally, you need the disposition, the desire to think logically, uh, particularly about things that might challenge your beliefs, right? You have to have uh, open-mindedness, curiosity, um, uh, what's called intellectual humility, to appreciate the fact that you might be wrong. So those three areas together constitute what it means to be a critical thinker. Within any one of them, there, there's dispute. There could be reasonable disputes. You know, some things there's clear consensus. You need to know logic. You need some kind of language skills, particularly the ability to turn everyday language into a structured format that can be analyzed for uh, logical reasonableness. There's other skills, background knowledge. You know, then there's just some dispute. Is creativity part of the critical thinking process? But even within these sort of gray areas, it's very clear. You know. To be a critical thinker, you need to understand logic, uh, understand um, you know, how to obtain background uh, information, language skills, a handful of other pieces, and you must both know them, knowledge, be able to apply them, skills, and have the dispositions to use them, dispositions. Awesome. Yeah, those all sound essential to deciphering like the information that we receive these days. But I wanted to say one thing that really stuck out for me was you mentioned the the ability to accept that you could be wrong or have the open-mindedness to accept that your opinion could be open to change or the fact that you might not have all the right answers. And I think that that really stuck out for me because one thing that concerns me so much in our modern lives is echo chambers. 
and because the truth is we all exist in them and i think to say that you don't and that you have a complete exposure to every kind of thought and idea and opinion in your social media it would just be wrong in the sense that we naturally gravitate towards and like and subscribe to things which which we believe in and kind of want to see more of so i think social media is particularly dangerous for that but at the same time i think if you do indeed have an open mind and try to expose yourself to new ideas then that can be a great antidote but i'd love to know what advice you would give to our listeners in order to effectively analyze information we see on social media sure well, i'd say you know social media has certainly been an accelerant of the phenomena you describe of us sort of locking ourselves into information bubbles but also of us sort of self-sorting into communities of the like-minded. I think um, there's a, a book out uh, close to 20 years ago called The Big Sort about how Americans have moved from most of us living in voting districts where uh, it's relatively even split between Republicans and Democrats to now a majority, and I, I would guess, you know, at this point, a vast majority of us live in communities, live in towns, live in neighborhoods, live in houses where our beliefs are really rarely ever challenged and even if we have a minority opinion in a community we can always retreat now to an online community uh, where our opinions um, are never going to be kind of subject to uh, questioning so i think you know social media is just the next phase in that right because we have cable news outlets that many of which not all but many of which exist to support uh, one belief system or another and now we can sort of subscribe to social media that will both reinforce that, but also the social media companies themselves are um, using our biases against us in order to keep us on their platform, even if they can only do it by driving us crazy. I, I think the key to this is sort of, you know, a term that I think you and I both use, which is bias, right? In, in Critical Voter, the very first sort of chapter, before I get into logic, before I get into language skills or uh, information literacy, any of these other subjects is bias, but it is, you know, how you can sort of identify it and contend with it. Because I'd say we don't really necessarily have a critical thinking crisis, you know, or a crisis of fake news. We have a crisis of bias and bias news, right? We are all subject to biases for the simple fact that we're human beings, right? There's sort of cognitive biases that are likely have been hardwired into our brains revolution. The most pernicious of these being confirmation bias, the tendency to accept and believe things that already conform to what you already believe and reject information that does not. So I think uh, these bubbles, these self-sorted communities, uh, social media, um, both you know what we choose to um, engage in in social media, but also what social media companies try to force onto us, they're all there to play off of our cognitive weaknesses, particularly confirmation bias. And so to a large extent, critical thinking is a way for individuals to use a set of very powerful techniques that help you better understand the world and make better decisions. But I think what they largely do is act as a check on confirmation bias. They don't eliminate it because as I said, it may be part of our human wiring, but if we can identify it, be honest about it, do our best to, uh, at least control for it. That is a enormous kind of step in the right direction. The analogy I like to use is science, right? There's, there's people think about science as 
some special thing engaged with by special people. But it's really, if you think about it, it is primarily a culture designed to limit the damage of confirmation bias, mm. you know, through peer review, through sharing data, through sharing results, there's a check on people believing false things. And scientists do believe false or at least wrong things all the time, but within the culture of science, there's ways to uh, counter that. Mm -hmm. And so um, in many, many ways, the Critical Thinking Project is, how can we get some of those advantages of minimizing confirmation bias in areas outside of science so that we can progress socially as fast as we progressed scientifically and technically over the last several centuries. Yeah, let's hope so, because I definitely see confirmation bias coming up a lot in our topics. For example, we recently did an episode on conspiracy beliefs and under analyzing why people believe in conspiracy beliefs. And we didn't want to say necessarily the episode wasn't about like condemning people that believe in conspiracies. I mean, 50% of Americans believe in them. Uh, there's some that I think that like, well, that, that could be plausible, that could be possible. But at the same time, confirmation bias definitely does play a big role in, in this sense of believing like what you want to believe and kind of distancing yourself from the things that you don't want to believe. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brainspike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. There's also other biases that obviously are going to impact us. Uh, one other bias that's come up before on the show is actually survivorship bias, where we were discussing an episode about casinos and online gambling and how casinos use manipulative tools to influence people to, to use their services and to gamble and bet more. And survivorship bias is one where basically they show off people that have won large sums of money and people internally think, oh, that could be me. And they see just the person that that won that money and they don't think of all the people that lost all of their money. So I, I'd be interested to know, and I'm putting you on the spot here a bit, but are there other biases that you see um, impacting critical thinking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and here I'm really indebted, indebted to uh, Daniel Kahneman, you know, his book, Thinking mm -hmm. Fast and Slow. You know, this is the real breakthrough because historically we always thought, you know, humans are distinct from other animals by our reason. And if reason failed us, it's because some of our emotion or animal instincts sort of overwhelmed reason. But, you know, Kahneman Tversky's work really sort of zeroed on the fact that our, our cognitive faculties are flawed, right? We engage in heuristics, you know, shortcuts in reasoning. And many times these are useful and certainly, you know, they've had evolutionary benefit. You know, it was, it made sense to assume uh, Russell in the bushes was a predator and not to contemplate before fleeing and just to flee on, on kind of first hearing something. So in a way that, you know, is, is proposed as a sort of birth of confirmation bias. But now that we're in the modern world, confirmation bias is obviously biting us, as is survivorship bias. You know, there are biases such as an anchoring bias. I think a famous example from Kahneman's book is if you went into a classroom and asked everybody was Mahatma Gandhi 140 years old when he died, 
everybody would know that was false. If you went into another classroom and asked if he died when he was eight, everybody would get that wrong. But then if you asked people in the first class and the second class to write down how old they think he was when he died, the first class, which had been anchored in the high number of 140, would give you a much higher average than in the other class. So, you know, and this has kind of pernicious consequences, right? If uh, a politician wants to um, get you to think in a certain way, one way they could do it is to anchor your perception in a certain number. You know, uh, uh, another critical thinking educator called Kevin Plant said if, uh, if a leader had sort of ordered an airstrike that killed a thousand people, you know, the best step he should take to, if you want to take advantage of the anchoring bias is to apologize for dozens of deaths. And at that point, the entire debate would be around how much higher or lower than dozens, as opposed to a quest for the actual number. So that's um, that's a, a, another bias. You know, there's there's various biases involving the availability of information, you know, availability heuristics, information that's closer to the surface is um, going to have more impact on you than information you have to dig deeper uh, for. I, I use this when I'm talking with kids who are applying to college, right? My own uh, son, well, I've got one son in college, one who's applying. And, you know, if you have a conversation with a friend who's gone to a particular college, that will have more of an impact on you than weeks of research you might have done earlier in the year, just because it's, it's a recency effect. Um, similarly, if you kind of visit a school on a sunny day, you might associate uh, the pleasure of, of the weather with liking that school better than perhaps a school you might have seen on a cold or a cloudy day. So those are all examples of how these sort of mental shortcuts um, can impact our reasoning. And in fact, they're also the very techniques that politicians and advertisers are using to get persuade us one way or another and social media companies, right? You know, we talk about tribalism, we talk about emotional reasoning and that's all real. But I'd say if you, if you look at the professionals, you know, they've all read their Kahneman and they, they know uh, where our, those shortcuts can lead to misperceptions and they take advantage of that. Yeah, that perfectly leads me on to my next point because I would love to talk about the recent debates between the presidential candidates. Now, I must start off by saying that I have not been following them because to be quite honest, they stress me out. And uh, if I was American then I and I could vote and I could have some kind of influence in the situation, then I'd feel like, right, I have an obligation to tune in on this. But as a British person living in Colombia, I feel like, right, this is a level of stress that I do not need during 2020 right now. So I cannot say that I've been following them closely. However, I have been following the, like, the politics of what's been going on, and I find it all very interesting. You stated that you have experienced decoding arguments in understanding what people like presidential candidates are really trying to convince you to believe. Uh, could you highlight some examples of all moments in the recent presidential candidate debates. Sure, yeah, no, happy to. And um, I should note here, you know, the book I mentioned, Critical Voter, uh, that was based actually on a podcast I did during the 2012 election that analyzed that year's presidential race uh, based on various critical thinking skills. I turned that into a book in 2016 and then um, updated it most recently. And I've also got a website called Logic Check uh, which is logiccheck.net that has been doing sort of contemporary analysis of the current election cycle 
based on the whole range of critical thinking skills. So, you know, just to pull a couple examples from the debates, right? You know, mm -hmm. most people watch the first debate and they've used train wreck, you know, they've had more scatological images, but sort of everybody agreed this thing was a disaster. You know, but um, there wasn't really sort of the vocabulary to explain what was going on. All the presidents seemed to be out of control and everybody was sort of shouting at each other. Uh, but if you understand sort of rhetoric um, and um, fallacies and sort of informal arguments, you realize there was a, a, a method there, not a particularly effective one, but a, a method called argumentation from outrage, which is a technique you see often in uh, sort of more um, hysterical talk shows and things, but it, it's basically when somebody um, kind of raises the emotional temperature so high that normal discourse can't continue, right? We've uh, probably experienced that ourselves in, in sort of heated political debates, but in sort of professional in, in sort of professional political debates, it's, it's unusual. Now, I, I found that one interesting because in 2012, I wrote about argumentation for outrage, but the example I used was the vice presidential debate that year in which it was Joe Biden who totally misbehaved and shouted and interrupted and eye rolled. And at the time I thought that was the kind of most outrageous example of argumentation from outrage I'd ever seen. But in fact, Trump, you know, out, outdid him by a factor of 10, you know. So, so I think, you know, a few, a few things out of that, you know, one, one of the reasons people kind of were so appalled by what happened was that you know they are fundamentally when you're tuning into a debate you're looking for some kind of conversation some kind of discussion some kind of you want real argumentation to be going on um, and argumentation for outrage prevents that from happening so I think that's one of the reasons um, kind of Trump came off badly because he was held responsible for the debate being kind of largely built around this 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 you know fallacious form of arguing um, and I think, you know, the public doesn't want kind of, of professional wrestling kind of, of taunts and shouts, you know, in a presidential debate. They want actual disputation happening. Another example, I'd say in the vice presidential debate, there was a question about uh, packing the court, which, you know, your international listeners may not be familiar with, but, you know, that references something that took place uh, during the Roosevelt administration during the uh, 30s, where he proposed adding justices to the Supreme Court, largely to dilute the power of existing justices who were standing in the way of, of many of his policy proposals. So we understand that's what stacking the court meant. And there was a threat that if uh, the Republicans nominated another Supreme Court justice, which they just did, you know, before the election nominated and put her on the bench, that the Democrats would pack the court, which, you know, that would mean go, moving from nine justices to more so that existing justices who were more conservative than, than liberal could be supplemented by justices who would uh, share the uh, politics of, of the, the ruling party. Right, so there was rumor and even conversation that if Democrats won all both houses of Congress and the presidency, they would do this. So how did kind of Harris avoid this? Well, she redefined the term backing the court. She referred to the Republicans uh, nominating only conservatives to the court as court packing, right? And whatever you think of kind of partisan selection process, it's not what we commonly refer to as court packing. Okay, so that's an example of a fallacy. 
the fallacy of equivocation. Equivocation takes advantage of the fact that words can have more than one meaning. In this case, Biden and his running mate were deliberately coming up with a new definition of a term, court packing, in order to avoid having to answer tough questions about a controversial policy. So these are two examples, and there's you know many others on my logic check site that uh, show how the critical thinking tool set applied to not just debates, but TV ads, editorials, even conversations we have with one another can at least give us a vocabulary for understanding what's really going on. Yeah, and you, I really like your second point that you made, actually. It reminds me of something which I've heard before. Using the term gun control is very controversial in the US. And it, for many people that are like strong supporters of the right to bear arms, even hearing like gun control, it ignites something within people which make people kind of respond in one way or another. But if you change the term to gun violence prevention, then people's attitudes mm. towards it change completely. So it's quite interesting, like, yeah, almost how we, we develop these kind of initial kind of responses just to like hearing words in a certain way. It really makes a difference, like how they're labeled. But um, if people are listening and they want to hear like more about, about your work or they want to visit your website and they want to basically get a better understanding of how to become better critical thinkers, how can they do that? Is there, is there social media you can point them to or do you have a website which you specifically want to send them to? Sure, I'd say probably the best uh, starting place would be my own sort of professional website, which is jonathanhaber.org. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-H-A-B-E-R.org. That has links to uh, my books, um, also has links to uh, various projects, including the Logic Check site, which I guess if people are interested in, in the subjects we've just been talking about, that would be another important stop, would be logiccheck.net. Uh, that's got the most sort of contemporary examples of critical thinking in action. And then the um, MIT Press book, uh, Critical Thinking and Critical Voter, uh, those are both available both, both available on Amazon, but also can be uh, found descriptions of them and information of them on that jonathanhaber.org site. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been great talking to you and uh, good luck with all your work. I've enjoyed your podcast and Looking forward to hearing the next ones. Awesome. Excellent. That was today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Go check out other articles and podcasts just like this at sociable.co. You can also find us on YouTube under The Sociable or tweet at us at, at The Sociable. And you can subscribe and follow all of our podcasts on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Just search Brains Bite Back. We hope you join us again soon and take care.